In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The era of big government is over. Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. This episode, I want to have more of a philosophical conversation about free markets and conservatism. And I'm inspired to have this conversation because of a column you wrote this week about the decreasing popularity of free market capitalism and the increasing popularity, especially among younger people, of what's called democratic socialism, but what you say is really social democracy. I want to get into those labels uh, and also talk about the main points of your column. But first, our listeners might be wondering what drew you into your own political philosophy. Uh, You call yourself a libertarian conservative. So what does that mean, and how did you develop these beliefs? Well, when I was uh, 16, I read an anthology of Bill Buckley's, and um, serendipitously, to borrow a Buckley word, uh, the very first essay was a fairly long one um, entitled something like um, Towards an Empirical Definition of Conservatism. And uh, I ended up reading a lot of Buckley and uh, the writers and thinkers that I discovered um, through that process uh, led me to a very deep um, orientation in conservative um, philosophy and thought. Um, I also uh, was interested in political philosophy, studied it a lot, took a lot of classes in it, so I got all points of view, but it um, did uh, always, from that point, um, seem to me that it was a far more persuasive uh, political philosophy Um, And uh, probably its principal appeal to me is that the um, point of view of libertarian conservatism, uh, which derives a lot from John Locke, is that the primary purpose of government uh, is to protect the liberty of the individual. And uh, that's something that both philosophically appeals to me and in my judgment, practically works in the real world. Was there ever times after you started reading that book or, or through college where uh, the viewpoint, or that viewpoint, the conservative viewpoint, was, was challenged uh, and knocked you off of those beliefs, either things that were going on in current events or other persuasive uh, people or books that you've read? Um, it's been relentlessly uh, challenged um, since uh, liberal orthodoxy um, is the dominant political thought uh, then and now. I went to a very liberal um, liberal arts college uh, by the name of Occidental College, and uh, there were precious few conservative thinkers, although there was probably more then than now, and they were practically non-existent uh, then. Um, and I've read extensively across the political spectrum, um, all the way to Karl Marx. Uh, but no, nothing during that period uh, knocked my belief that a government whose principal purpose is to protect the liberty of individuals 
is both um, philosophically uh, the right kind of government and as a practical matter produces the greatest good for the greatest number um, to follow John Stuart Mill's um, formulation. So the base of your column is that uh, there's one mistake that young people shouldn't make uh, if they adopt a version of socialism, this idea that uh, the role of the government is simply to protect individual liberty is almost uh, non-existent in, in the way we talk about government now, and the federal government's grown uh, to take on lots of different roles besides that. But now, uh, see stats, and you mentioned these stats, that just the labels, capitalism, the popularity is falling, um, and the popularity of socialism is increasing. Uh, but you say there's one type of socialism that would cripple this system in America. And I think your answer sort of differentiates also the difference between the labels of, you know, quote unquote, socialism, democratic socialism, which you call social democracy. So what's, what is that one mistake and in, in, in the basis of your, of your column? Well, no one is actually advocating a return to socialism. Um, if the term socialism is going to retain any useful meaning in political philosophy and discussions and dialogues about political economy, uh, it means government ownership of the significant means of production. Um, Western Europe used to have a lot of socialist countries. It no longer has any. Uh, they have all gone to forms of democratic capitalism. Uh, where the most significant decisions about what to produce and how much to produce um, relies upon price mechanisms, not government dictates. The term democratic socialism was originally coined to differentiate it from communism, uh, in which, as I put in the column, people have the right to choose who's going to mismanage the state enterprises as opposed to communism, where you have a communist party that controls all the shots and inevitably just a few people at the top that make all those decisions. Uh, there is a desire um, by um, particularly young Americans to move more in the direction of um, Europe's system of a safety net. Uh, I think that's a mistake for a variety of reasons, and I think ultimately it will be proven to be so. But there is another element of European-style social democracy, which involves heavy regulation of capital markets and particularly labor, labor markets. And this creates a contradiction uh, that uh, cannot be overcome. Uh, if you're going to have a bigger government, you need a more productive private sector economy to produce the wealth that's necessary to sustain the bigger government. And if you restrict or try to direct through government capital investment or the free movement of labor, you're going to have an underperforming economy, as much of Western Europe is. Now, there are a few small northern European uh, countries that have combined 
big government with a more aggressive, more expansive social net, but relatively free economies. Uh, and that appears to be a model that, while not optimal from my standpoint, is sustainable because you still have the private sector producing the wealth that's necessary in order to afford the more extensive array of government programs that tends to be desired. So you, you would argue for less regulation of, of labor markets. Um, but I think some of the main arguments for increasing that is protection of the worker, that, that workers, um, I, I think the, just sort of the conflict that, you know, someone like a democratic socialist would, would talk about is that if you've got, uh, business owners or, or corporations whose main goal is to increase their profit margins, that, uh, all their decisions are going to be trying to minimize uh, the cost of, you know, the cost of labor. And uh, so isn't it in their best interest to, you know, do things that would, uh, you know, to use a strong word, exploit uh, their their workers? Uh, and so shouldn't we have um, protections like like minimum wage and, and uh, you know, like like strong legal guarantees and strong strong labor unions that can protect their interests against uh, the interests of, you know, the the corporate owners who uh, who might not have their best interests in mind. Well, in a free market, the way that you make profit uh, is to produce a better product at a more competitive price uh, than your competitors. And uh, one of the keys to success in doing that is the quality of your workforce. So there is competition for good workers, which drive up worker uh, wages. Uh, and one of the big ironies in this infatuation with democratic um, socialism, as they call it, among the young, is uh, that one of the characteristics of these uh, Western European countries that try to do both uh, and heavily regulate labor markets is sky-high unemployment among young adults. Uh, it is the free movement of labor that is the best protection for workers. The northern European countries that I discussed create a um, fairly strong... Uh, don't, don't try to regulate the labor markets the way that France or some other countries do. Uh, but do provide um, fairly generous unemployment benefits if someone is displaced uh, and uh, job training to get them recalibrated and back into the workforce. And it ultimately gets down to, um, are you going to have a private sector economy that produces the wealth that big government Requires. I mean, I, I think you should have a free private sector economy to increase um, individual material well-being. But if one of the things you want is a bigger government as well, you got to have a successful private sector economy in order to be able to afford it. And the evidence is very clear that if you have overly restricted labor markets, um, you have um, stagnant economies and economies that, that lock out uh, new entrants, uh, particularly young adults. What kind of uh, regulations do you do you support uh, in terms of kind of some of these checks on 
uh, you know, do you, is there any regulations you'd support on, on, you know, what some of these presidential candidates would be, we talk about It's like, you know, corporate, corporate greed, corporate abuse. Um, are there any, um, I guess, positive, uh, regulations and laws, uh, either at the federal level or at the state levels that you think are necessary? Well, if there are true conspiracies in restraint of trade, um, not just um, dominant market positions as a result of providing a superior product and, or service, uh, which requires continuing to offer a superior product or service in order to protect that dominant um, position. But if there are true conspiracies in restraint of trade, um, either uh, with respect to prices charged consumers, or as we've seen um, on occasion in Silicon Valley, where there was informal agreements not to go after each other's workers, uh, then yes, the, um, there is a legitimate role of, of government to protect the integrity of markets. Uh, but beyond that, I think the evidence is fairly strong that competition for labor is um, the best protection of labor uh, not government trying to micromanage what happens in the workforce and looking over the shoulders of employers uh, in ways that create uh, more static uh, economic activity. I mean, Silicon Valley is an interesting example of, um, I think there's a lot of socialism, not just democratic socialism, but socialism and, in, in San Francisco. And uh, I think it, you know, Look at the tech companies move in, property values increase, uh, wealthier people uh, move into those places, and you kind of price out um, maybe ordinary working class people that uh, that live there. And I think even just to weave in some news here, you know, even with the with the new jobs report, the economy's booming. Um, maybe some of the corporate tax cuts can be attributed to the booming economy and the, and the low unemployment rate. But the counter response that I think these uh, people leaning towards the democratic socialist philosophy would say is, you know, maybe back in the day you could get a job at a high school, work your way up to a stable income, be able to afford your own house, maybe with one parent working. Um, and even though we've got lower unemployment rate and increasing material prosperity right now, you know, if you're a lower middle class person working, you might need to work two or three jobs uh, to afford rent in an apartment in the city, and then you don't have any time to, to spend with your families, uh, which, you know, hurts the family life. And then, you know, if something happens, you might be, you know, something happens with your, someone gets sick or something, it could just cripple you financially. So is, um, what's, what's, what's the response to that of, of uh, those generational differences and the perception of, of prosperity and, um, you know, a place like San Francisco and, prosperity for some is perhaps not being equally shared by everyone else in the community. The, the percentage of people who are working more than one job is extremely small. Um, overall, hours worked in the United States has steadily uh, declined. I mean, it used to be that people uh, worked six or seven hours a day um, 10 to 14 hours a day to try to flog 
uh, a living out of the ground um, in, in rural agriculture. Um, the average American today lives in a house that's about 50% larger uh, than the average American in the 1950s. Um, and there are few pe fewer people living in the house. Um, people uh, own more stuff. Their stuff does more stuff. Uh, our statistics that are used to flog this point of view, I think fairly clearly don't reflect true improvements in material well-being. And even the very poor in America uh, tend to have as much living space uh, and um, have as much material possessions as the middle class, even in um, some uh, developed Western European countries. Um, so I, I don't think that the critique uh, fits. And you have had, I think, with the Trump tax cut, um, some good illustrations. Uh, we've had increased uh, business investment. Um, we've had increased uh, employment. Uh, the largest wage gains are occurring to uh, those who don't have a college education. Their, their gains have actually exceeded those that have a college education. Productivity of the American worker is going up um, uh, for the first time in a very long time. So why do you think that young people in particular perceive that their opportunities or their well-being is not as as good as it as it maybe was back then or that it that it well, could or should be? Yeah, they're 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 told it constantly. Um and the things that you described, uh, there is a desire for security. And there may be a desire by the body politic for more security than I think it wise for government to guarantee. But you can provide the safety nets for all of the things that you described uh, without shackling uh, the private sector economy. And that was sort of the distinction I was trying to suggest. Uh, if you believe that we need a safety uh, net so that uh, people who have a health problem don't face the prospect of bankruptcy or going without care. If you believe that those who uh, are locked out of the economy because of a lack of skills uh, need skills, then you can create a program that do that does that. So, uh, well, I think it, it would be better if government stayed out of virtually all of that. Um, you can have a government that do, does those things if you want to have security. But, if it, but you cannot simultaneously then shackle the private sector economy with excessive regulation, or else you're going to run into Margaret Thatcher's problem with socialism, which is ultimately you run out of other people's money. And, and it's not as though we don't have examples in Europe of doing it right and doing it wrong. Uh, so if, if uh, I'm still hopeful that young adults will see life differently. If you go back to the 1950s when Bill Buckley uh, created uh, modern American conservatism, liberal orthodoxy was far more dominant than it was today. 
Uh, and after Barry Goldwater was defeated uh, in 1964, no one would have guessed uh, that in just 16 years, um, Barry Goldwater conservatism would become the dominant political philosophy in the country and would attract enormous numbers of young people. Um, in the 1970s, no one would have predicted that you would ever dismantle uh, the government ownership of major industries in Great Britain. Well, Margaret Thatcher was elected and she did it. So I'm not giving up the hope uh, of young Americans uh, ultimately um, seeing things differently. Um, but uh, I just wanted to point out that uh, if what you want is bigger government, there's, there is a model uh, that has proven to be reasonably sustainable, as opposed to the model that we're headed towards with what everything that the Democratic candidates for presidents are saying, uh, which has been proven to be unsustainable, and to lock out of the formal economy young adults. Um, they are the ones that uh, suffer most from a stagnant, ram-shackled uh, uh, private sector economy. I just want to bring up two examples of conservatives uh, who are saying a couple of different things about kind of the traditional conservatism, limited government, free, free markets. Uh, there's kind of seems to be more of a discussion of what proactive things that can be done that would be more, it would advance more of a conservative perspective. Maybe that the idea of conservative is conservatism is changing, but one example, uh, Oren Cass is a conservative economist, and he talks a lot about, you know, the work, the working, the workforce, and one of his things is, uh, is the opposite of, of free college for everyone, which is what a lot of Democrats are saying. He thinks we should stop subsidizing college and spend more time subsidizing work training programs uh, for people that aren't going to college. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Oh, I, I think we've made a serious mistake in relying on universities to credential people for the workforce. It's a hugely inefficient way to do that. And these days they get socialized in a way that isn't um, healthy. It's, it's one of the reasons why we uh, do have young adults with the political views that they have, it's because they've been indoctrinated to those views in most of our major universities. So I, I don't know that we need to have government programs that do that. It used to be that um, businesses absorbed the cost of job training uh, for their employees. Uh, exactly why that should be a responsibility of taxpayers rather than employers who are going to reap at least the initial benefits from it. The employee also reaps benefits and then has a portable skill. Um, but I think he's certainly correct uh, that uh, we need to redirect the way that we credential people for jobs away from universities. I think that hurts education, too, because you're taking in almost every single school and saying, we're prepping you for college, we're prepping you for college. And uh, I think that absolutely there should be uh, options and availability for that for everyone, um, but to 
to force everyone into college, 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 uh, I think hurts a lot of people who would who'd be really better off uh, in a lot of other sort of educational experiences. Uh, another column just over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Peggy Noonan uh, writes about how the political will to advance these free market, limited government things are is way low. Uh, so instead, we should focus on uh, using the government to support things that would be more, you know, conservative in terms of values. Like, how do you how do you promote more family or social stability in in communities? I think David Brooks talks about that a lot too. Of, you know, how do you how do you foster healthier communities and and community identities, whether it's faith or other, you know, things that, that bind us together, uh, starting with the healthy family unit. Is there a role for, for government in, in advancing those goals? It, it's, it's very uh, important to the health of a society, but I don't see a useful role for government to play in it. And if you have government assert that role... Uh, it will itself be the subject of politics, and chances are that you will end up parroting whatever the liberal line is about those things. Um, I don't think that you, I mean, this was sort of George W. Bush's idea. We're, we're, we're going to quit fighting the big government, small government battle. We are instead going to harness big government to serve conservative ends. Uh, and I just don't think that big government can be harnessed in that way, and it misses one of the fundamental principles of conservatism, uh, which is um, that uh, the role of government should be limited and limited to those things that are in the collective good, not interfering with um, individual decisions and uh, individual choices. And it's certainly true that we are at a low ebb uh, in terms of support from my point of view. Um, but as I said, we were at a low ebb in the 1950s and in 1964, and by 1980, uh, that point of view was the dominant political philosophy of the country. Uh, in the 1970s, no one thought that you could dismantle uh, the nationalized industries in Great Britain, and Margaret Thatcher uh, did it. And then there are certain external realities that are going to hit this country. Uh, within 10 years, the Medicare Hospitalization Trust Fund uh, will go broke. It will not be receiving from payroll taxes sufficient money uh, to pay the benefits that are currently being paid. Not much longer after that, uh, the Social Security Trust Fund is going to go broke. That The payroll taxes that are supporting that program will be insufficient to pay the benefits that are currently legally obligated. Uh, also, at some point in time, and I don't know when it will be, I think the credit markets will no longer be willing to uh, provide unlimited uh, loans to the federal government at very low interest rates. So there are certain external realities um, that I think will focus attention back on these issues. Uh, and uh, rather than borrowing money uh, for big government, uh, we're going to have to pay for big government as we go. Uh, and I think that will re cause people to recalibrate how much yeah. big government is worth to them. 
as well as, as, as I write in the column, it just befuddles me that anyone can look at the world around us and say, you know the, what the problem is? Our government is too big and our politicians don't control too much. And particularly young people um, with their interest in individual uh, and informal social networking I, I think are ripe to come to the conclusion that looking to government for the answer isn't the answer. We need to look for it in ourselves and in individual action. Last point uh, on here is, you know, I see the one of the factors uh, causing young people to turn away from conservatism the last couple of years has been Donald Trump. Like every 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 policy or idea that is attached to his name, there's sort of a revulsion attached to it. And I think fairly, um, it's one example of how you know the messaging, even for someone whose whole thing was supposedly image and 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 communication, is uh, most most people that are getting. A, a, a tax decrease don't think that they're getting a tax decrease. So that's the signature economic accomplishment uh, is not, is not even perceived as happening by, by most of the people. But the final question is, do you think Republicans need new policies like going in these uh, kind of new conservative directions, or do you think they just need better advocates uh, to communicate the, age-old message of conservatism? I, I, I'm a um, small government libertarian conservative. Um, I uh, believe that that is a message um, that can be persuasively conveyed. I agree that uh, Donald Trump is not the one to convey it, and I don't think he even believes in it. I mean, he's done some conservative things, but I don't think uh, that he's truly a small government uh, libertarian conservative. There, you need to have um, a uh, cheerful, optimistic, um, evangelical, uh, politically evangelical uh, message, like Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp. Uh, these were two people who were interested in converting other people, and increasing the number of people who agreed with their point of view. Uh, in recent years, conservatives have been led by people who want to divide the American electorate in a way in which there's more people on our side of the line than the other side, and have very little interest in convincing people on the other side to come join our side. Uh, the demographics are not favorable to that strategy. I, I uh, am hopeful uh, that there are still conservatives with Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp's uh, desire to convert people, persuade people, increase the number of people who share these point of views, as opposed to people who are just looking to win the next election by creating divisions in which yeah. temporarily there's more people on our side of the line than the other. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that, and I think there's a lot of uh, different demographics that could be persuaded that are right now just ignored by 
Republican politicians. Well, last final question. Uh, the Suns just made another coaching change. They're going to have their fifth coach in five years. Uh, Monty Williams is coming in. Uh, what are your thoughts on that shift? Well, I think um, Phoenix has congratulated itself a little bit too much uh, for getting Williams to choose us over the L.A. Lakers. <laughs> I suspect a large part of that uh, was because Williams knew that if you were coach of a team that had LeBron James on it, you weren't really the coach. <laughs> um, so you would know more about how good of a fit he will be. Um, but uh, Lordy knows that that franchise needs some stability and leadership in that position. Yeah, I did see something that gave me a little bit of optimism that, that Sarver opened up and self-reflected about the micromanaging that's caused disruption and has sort of uh, put his faith in James Jones, the general manager. So hopefully we'll see, you know, at least some stability for this young, young team and perhaps a couple, couple free agents and a, and a coach to at least play together for two years, three if, years. If, if Jones is as good a GM as he was at hitting the three, <laughs> we're, we're golden. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, subscribe to us and listen on any podcasting app. Thank you.